As you heard Steve reading John chapter 9, verse 1 through 7, we are today hoping to get through John chapter 9 altogether. And if you're not yet aware of how we do this, uh, we are attempting to work through a whole entire book so that we can see the sequential thoughts that God has given us in the actual sequence in which it was written. Very important for us to understand scriptures in full and instead of just kind of like fishing out a verse here and fishing out a verse over there and not seeing the full picture. How many of you know, especially today, you find that in the news where um, the, the, the anchors will take a half a statement made by somebody and then they'll put their spin on it, right? And in the same way, um, we need to be careful to not misunderstand the meaning of what was being said in scriptures. We want to understand the full meaning, the author's original intent. And in order to do so, we have to exegete, in other words, pull out of the complete picture, the meaning that God uh, um, put in there. Now, in order to understand where we're coming from, we have to take one step back and understand that chapter 9 starts after some things happened that were pretty significant. And to understand how the scene in John chapter uh, 9 starts, we need to realize that Jesus had just a very contentious and controversial dispute with the Jews, where the Jews concluded that Jesus was demon-possessed. And the argument was over the fact that Jesus said that they did not know God. How many of you know how angry somebody gets when when they're told, like, you don't know God of the Scriptures. Oh, my goodness, do they get angry over this issue. And you go like, well, at least you don't know the God of Scriptures. I know God. God and I, we're like this. And this is what was happening right here. Jesus told them that they did not know God because if they did, they would honor Him because He was from God. That made sense. At least to Jesus it did, but not to the Jews. In John chapter 8, verse 50, Jesus said, You have not come to know God, but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar just like you. So what Jesus was saying is you lie for saying that you know God. Every time you say you know God, you lie. And I, if I had to say that I didn't know Him, I'd be a liar just like you, because I do know Him. That's John 8, verse 50. In other words, Jesus was drawing lines. And the Jews responded that they knew their forefather Abraham, and he was there because he was their father of the faith. And Jesus again said to them, basically, he said, Abraham, the Bible said, rejoice when he saw my day in a vision. Now remember, Abraham lived long before Jesus. He's the... Father Abraham had many sons. He was their father, remember? Their father in the faith. And the Bible says that Abraham in a vision saw the Messiah coming and he rejoiced. And Jesus brings us up at this point and he says, Oh, so you say, now that I tell you you don't know God, you're getting angry over this. I'm telling you you're a liar for saying that you know him. Because if you knew God, you would rejoice when you saw me because I am from God. But you want to kill me. You obviously don't know God. And now you say you know Abraham. But I tell you, Jesus is saying that Abraham rejoiced when he saw this day, my day, in a vision. 
And if Abraham was here, basically, he'd be rejoicing. But again, you want to kill me. You're obviously batting for the wrong team. And finally, at this point, Jesus then adds this straw that breaks the camel's back completely by making this very, very controversial statement in the heat of the argument. Now, there's a lot of controversy, and Jesus just piles it on top. It's almost like throwing a gallon of fuel on top of this blazing fire. When he makes this statement, he pushes them right over the edge. In John 8, verse 58b, he says, Truly, I say to you, truly, truly, actually, he says it twice, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, when he said that, this is where the Jews became enraged, outraged, and unhinged. How dare Jesus use the name of God as his own name? Because remember, when Moses said, Who do I say sent me? To you, Pharaoh. When Moses asked God, Who should I say sent me? God said, Say, I am. That's my name. I am. And here, in the New Testament, Jesus now tells them, Truly, truly, I tell you, I am. Oh my goodness, did they just lose it. As a matter of fact, the Bible says they picked up rocks and they, tried, they wanted to stone him and kill him right there. It says so in, um, in John 8 verse 59. It says, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and left the temple grounds. Okay, so here they are in the temple grounds. They're basically at church, okay? And Jesus makes the statement that I am God. You don't know God. If you knew Him, you would accept me because I'm from God. Oh, but we know Abraham. Oh, by the way, if Abraham was here, he would rejoice at seeing me. Yet you want to kill me. You don't know Abraham. Yes, we are of Abraham. And he says, you know, truly, I tell you, I, I am. Oh, my goodness. This was, this was too much for them. They're picking up stones and whew, he's gone. In the temple grounds. So he's now walking at the temple grounds, and as he does, this is where our next chapter starts, chapter 9. In this volatile atmosphere, also remember, it is the Sabbath day, and Jesus, as he narrowly escapes the crowd that wanted to stone him to death, he walks away and he sees this blind man on his way out. This blind man begging for money. Verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. When, was, when would he go blind? He was born blind. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? This was always a very big thought in their minds back then. It is still a very big thought in everybody's minds today. Right? They asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he would be born blind. So in other words, they only gave him two options. And the one thought was that he, this man, when he was a soul prior to being born, somehow he sinned and therefore he was born blind. Or maybe he did not sin. His parents sinned and the sins of his parents now has brought this upon him. Jesus answered, verse 3, it was neither. All right. It was neither that this man sinned 
nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Hmm. Jesus said, you gave me two options. I'm giving you the third one. It wasn't your first option. He didn't sin. That's what. This is not because of his sin. It didn't say he was sinless. Jesus is saying his blindness wasn't because he sinned. His parents aren't sinless, but his blindness wasn't because of his parents' sin either. And by the way, Jesus, the Bible makes it very clear that the children do not carry the sins or they do not carry the consequences of their parents' sin. Each person will be held accountable for every one of their sins. Why would two people pay for the same sin, the parent and the innocent child? Would God be just or unjust if the innocent child gets punished for the parent's sin? God would be unjust. Every one person will pay for his sins. So again, generation 2021, you do not pay for the sins of your parents. And we can, go, we can actually study that and I'll show you through scriptures that that is very clear. God does not punish the same sin twice. So here, otherwise he'd be unjust. So here, Jesus answered, it was neither this, that this man sinned nor his parents, but this blindness was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. The disciples obviously held to this idea that all pain, all pain was due to sin. All suffering was due to sin. All hardship and all death was due to sin. And everybody at the time believed that suffering was caused by sin. They believed that either the individual sin caused them, caused them to suffer, like Job's three friends and his wife. They thought that he had to have sinned somehow for this to have come upon him. Yet it wasn't because of his sin. Or they have the second idea that the parents' sin caused this child to suffer up to the fourth generation. And here Jesus helps the disciples understand that there is a difference, and I want you to understand it, that there is a difference between the cause and the purpose of suffering. There is a difference between the cause and the purpose of suffering. Sin was not the cause of this man's blindness. God's glory was the purpose for his blindness. Jesus said it right there. Jesus was teaching them the Romans 8.28 principle, which says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God and those who are called according to what? He's? Things work out to the, all things, good and evil, happy and sad. All these things work out for God's purposes to be established in a person's life. All things. Have you ever seen a child who has never experienced, who grew up never experiencing one hard day in life? Have you seen a child like that? Yeah, God help us. <laughs> That's a monster. If he doesn't get his way. That's the monster. But have you seen somebody who grew up, not everyone, but many, who have grown up having a lot of hard times in life? No rough edges. Because there's something, there's a purpose to hardship and suffering. The fact is that many suffer in life, 
and their suffering is caused by what they have done, or maybe it was caused by what somebody else did to them. However, when you're able to see that God's purpose in suffering is greater than causes of pain, God's purpose in suffering is greater than the causes of pain, then you can trust Him in the situation that you're in. Then you can see the light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to loss, pain, or suffering. The purposes that God has is greater than the causes. And they asked, what caused this man to be blind? And Jesus said, the purpose for his blindness is that God may be glorified. Stop looking at the cause. You're not going to figure it out always. But look for a purpose in what you might be going through today. This man was born blind. He is now old. He lived with this handicap all his life. And because of it, he is now a poor beggar. Think about it. He's an adult. He's been blind his whole life. Poor, begging for money. All the pain and the poverty that this man had to endure. For what purpose? For God's glory. Wow. Wow. The only possible way to reconcile a good God to a story of pain like this is when you're able to believe that God's purposes in that man's life is greater than the pain that man ever experienced. God's purposes is more significant than the pain he experienced. Human pain does not negate God's goodness because this is where people get hung up. Atheists love to ride this issue and ride this issue. No matter how many times it's been answered, they will ride this issue publicly. How can God be good in a situation like this? But remember this, that human pain does not negate the fact that God is good. But human pain oftentimes establishes God's purposes and His purposes are good. Does that make sense? It was pain that established a purpose here. The purpose that God had, and that is that Jesus came to open blind eyes, and now the whole world, every single generation for the last 2,000 years, know this. And they're without excuse. Now that man's pain has paid off generation after generation. We've got 8 billion people on the earth today. And they all know that Jesus came to make blind eyes see. Spiritual blind eyes, see. If you can see that, then you can make peace with suffering. God's purpose in your life is much more significant than the pain that oftentimes accomplishes that purpose. Think about the pain of being disciplined by God. How many of you have ever been disciplined by God in one way or another? Yeah, that's <laughs> like, that was painful. That was painful, and it is, it is painful. But on the one hand, think about the pain of being disciplined by God. While on the other hand, think of how safe and protected you are now that you've been disciplined. Think about the foolishness that's been removed from you now that you've been disciplined by God. I mean, think about the pain on the one hand caused by going into labor. But then on the other hand, how glorious it is the purpose is of giving birth. A brand new life. 
On the one hand, think about the pain in death. But then, on the other hand, think about God's glorious purpose in death. Absent from the body, present with God. God's purpose is greater than human pain and suffering. And it's human suffering that has caused the world to reject Jesus altogether. Have you noticed that? It's 9-11. Where was God? I think God's asking us the question, where have you been all this time? <laughs> when discipline comes, it's no good. It's not nice. But the purpose far outweighs the pain. God's purpose is greater than human suffering. Glorious purposes are established through painful experiences. Joseph being sold into slavery. But that experience was far outweighed by the purpose which was that many will stay alive. Jesus was crucified and now heaven has been populated. You see, the only possible way to endure hard times and pain is when you're able to believe that all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. You might be dealing with pain and suffering that was caused by either yourself or somebody else. Uh, the question to focus on is not, well, what caused this? Who dared bringing this pain upon me? That's not really the focus we ought to have. Because remember, God protects you, and God will take vengeance on your behalf. You don't have to. You can relax. And instead of chasing after, who did this to me? It's my father. He did this to me. My whole life. Look at what my father did to me. No, that's not what God called us to. He didn't call us to search out the cause. He called us to focus upon, okay, the purpose. For what purpose am I dealing with this in my life? What is the purpose of this suffering that I'm walking through right now. And that's what Jesus was telling them. They said, Jesus, what, what caused this man to be blind? His sin or his parents' sin? Jesus said, basta. He said, this man is blind for the purpose of bringing glory to God. And this is what we need to search for. And we'd be better, better off going off to seeking God's purpose in pain than trying to bring, trying to be God by fixing all the causes and playing judge by going after the one who brought this pain. Are you following what I'm saying? So ask yourself today, for what purpose am I going through this pressure? What is the purpose of this pain? What is the purpose of this suffering and the loss that I'm experiencing right now? So I've concluded that scriptures teach that God's purposes are more significant. God's purposes are more significant than the causes of human pain. Verse 4, the next he says, We must carry out the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. We, family, must carry out the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Not just I, but we, he says. Night is coming when no one can work. In other words, there is a season in your life where you can be used by God. 
But night comes, which is that which limits day. Night comes, that which limits day, limits your opportunity to serve God. We must carry out the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When He had said this, He spit on the ground, Jesus did, made mud from the saliva, and applied the mud to this blind man's eyes. Everybody say yuck. All right. The question is, why did Jesus spit in the ground? Now, remember, we just came out of the previous chapter where it was this volatile experience, this controversy. And he put that final straw on the camel's back that completely broke that camel's back. They were looking for rocks. And while they're looking for rocks, he's like, I'm out. And as he walks out, he goes, blind man. He goes, come here. <laughs> I mean, that he had time to do this and get away at the same time is amazing. He's a miracle worker for sure. So, <laughs> when he had said this, he spit on the ground and made mud from the, from the saliva and applied the mud to this man's eyes. Why did he do this? Well, ask yourself this question. Did Jesus not heal a man at the pool of Bethesda not too long ago? How did he heal the man? What did he do? He said, take up your bed and walk. As he's trying to get away from this crowd wanting to, wanting to stone him, why didn't he just say to the, to the blind man, open your eyes and see, and take off. Why didn't he do that? He actually stopped. He could have just spoken the word, but then he made mud instead. The question is why? Now, there are many different views why Jesus used mud instead. Many different views. But I have landed on this view as being the most credible one. And here it is. Remember, so I want to present this view to you. Remember that it was the Sabbath, right? When Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, what day was that? The Sabbath. <laughs> Just like, it's almost like he can't wait for the Sabbath so he can push all buttons. <laughs> right? <laughs> he says, remember, it was the Sabbath. So you were not allowed to work, of course, on the Sabbath. You were prohibited to bake bread. In the same way, you were prohibited to make clay, pottery, or anything like that. And Jesus obviously created greater controversy by healing somebody on the Sabbath day, but not by saying, take up your bed and walk, but this time by making mud, making clay, and smearing on this man's eyes. And every chapter so far, controversy is what pressured some to believe and others to reject. Every time Jesus created a controversial statement, the Bible says, and some believed. But first it said, and, and this was too hard for them. They walked away, but yet others believed. It's a strange thing. Do you remember when he said, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, and some were going like, are you talking about cannibalism? And that this is too hard, and they walked away. But others believed. Every single time, Jesus just ramped up that emotional high. When, they hit, when he hits that, that shrill moment, many walked away, all wanted to kill him, but others believed. And so here, <laughs> Jesus is creating another moment. That camel, that straw that broke the camel's back simply wasn't enough. Right there, he picks the next fight. He heals this man on the Sabbath by making clay. 
And every time this happens, some pick up stones, they rise up in anger, while others fall on their knees to worship. Every time. Nobody can sit and listen to Jesus without one of two things happening to them. They worship or they blaspheme. They worship or they blaspheme. One of the two. Nobody created such division than Jesus. I mean, he separated, he started separating the sheep from the goats long ago. <laughs> Everything he touches just divides. Verse 7. And Jesus said to him, this blind man, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. I mean, Paul, I mean, John just had to throw that in there. Don't forget, Siloam means sent. This pool's name is sent. So he left and washed. This blind man left, went there and washed his face, and he came back seeing. What a miracle. Every miracle is purposeful. Every miracle is calculated. Every miracle is specific. Jesus tells the gospel in every miracle. Remember when, he, remember when Jesus turned water into wine? How did he do it? He told them to take those, the, 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 the pots that was filled with water for ceremonial cleansing. And he said, I'm going to take this pot and fill it with wine, which is a type of blood, and you will be cleansed by the blood in the future. And those of you who are cleansed by this blood in the future, you are going to be my bride. Where did he, where did he turn water into wine? At the, At the wedding. Every single miracle was extremely meaningful. And then Jesus turns bread, I mean, turns, uh, multiplies the bread, and he says, don't forget, I am the bread of life. What you saw happen in the desert with the manna falling and falling until everyone was filled, I will keep on multiplying and multiplying the bread. You will be satisfied in me. I am that manna from heaven. I am what God sent to you. And then he walks across the water, which is reminiscent of the children of Israel coming through the desert, uh, through the Red Sea. Every miracle meant so much, and here he is. Here he is opening a blind eye or blind eyes. He's telling us something, right? He came to open blind eyes. This pool here that was called Sent, Pool of Siloam, this pool was here because it was sent from somewhere else. There was a river that flowed into it. It meant that this pool arrived here because the source of the river that flowed into it, that fountain, sent the water there. And God the Father, the source of healing, sent Jesus to come and open the blind eyes. Jesus was very strategic, purposeful, and specific in laying out exactly who He is. The sent one. And why He came was to heal the blind. He is our pool of Siloam sent to us by God. Here, in this miracle, we see Jesus teaching that He is the living waters who has come from God to open up the eyes of the spiritually blind. Verse 8. So the neighbors of this blind man 
those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. The man is himself kept saying, I am the one. <laughs> I don't know. Every time I read this, I have to crack up. Everybody's like, who is he? Is he? No, he is. Yes, he's not. He's like somebody that he, he's like, he's like that guy you're talking about. And the guy's like, no, I am he. I am he. I'm the guy that was blind. I am the beggar. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man. Can everybody please say the man? So he was referring to Jesus, and he says, The man who is called Jesus made mud and spit it on my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I don't know. So in this first section, or this first conversation, the beggar calls Jesus the man. Verse 13, They brought the man who was previously blind to the Pharisees now. Now, first the neighbors had this conversation with him. Now they're bringing him to the Pharisees. Verse 14, Now it was a Sabbath on the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then he, excuse me, then the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied mud to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God. Referring to Jesus. This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Sinner. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such things? And then there was a dissension among the Pharisees. So they said again to this man who was blind, what do you say about Jesus since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. He is a prophet. So in the second session of questioning, this beggar calls Jesus now a prophet. It's almost like he's starting to see Jesus clearer. His, his, his sight of Jesus is strengthening. First he said, the man. Now he says, the prophet. Verse 18, the Jews then did not believe it about him, that he had been blind and that he had received his sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents then answered and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already reached the decision that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be excommunicated from the synagogue. It was for this reason that his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now think about it. The parents knew that if they implied in any way that Jesus is the Messiah, they would be thrown out of the synagogue. They feared being thrown out of the synagogue because it meant something much different than being excommunicated out of a church today. Why? Because churches don't excommunicate people today anymore. They can just be in sin and be in the church both at the same time. It's totally fine. You know? and, and really, the Bible, Paul is very, very clear on that, that it's not. However, today, when, when, when somebody gets excommunicated from a, from, a, from, a, from a church, they go like, well, hey, <laughs> have it your way. I'm going to go to this church then. 
And every church just walk willing to accept anybody. Back in the day, it wasn't that way. If you get excommunicated from the synagogue, you are thrown out of Judaism. You're no longer a Jew. You're no longer a believer. You're no longer viewed as one. You have been literally excommunicated from faith itself. And they were in fear of that. And so they basically said, ask him. He's an adult. Don't ask us. We know nothing. So the question we're going to be asking ourselves is what do you do when people around you cannot stand up for the faith, will not stand up for the faith, even your family? How do you respond? Well, let's see how this man responds. Verse 24, so for a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. Now think about it. Here are these Pharisees in charge of the synagogue, teachers of the day, and they're looking at this man who is just touched by God and healed by Christ himself. And they are, they are basically interrogating him to see if he actually is a follower of Christ, because if he is, they would excommunicate him immediately. And they don't know what to do with the fact that, okay, well, he can now see, and everybody knows that he used to be blind. So for a second time, verse 24, they summoned the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. What are they saying? <laughs> they, 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 they're playing politics here. I don't know if you're familiar with the word gaslighting, is when the abuser attempts to make the one they are abusing question their own reality. So they'll abuse somebody and they go like, well, it's not true. You aren't being abused. Your reality is not true. And this former blind beggar just got touched by God, just got healed by God. He felt the favor of God in his life. And here the Pharisees are saying to him, it glorifies God when you call Jesus a sinner. Did you know that? So, you better call him a sinner, not a healer. That's what you have to call him. We call him a blasphemer. So go ahead and join us in glorifying God by calling Jesus a sinner, a blasphemer. Go ahead. Let me hear you. Now look at this man's boldness, this beggar who had nothing to lose. Verse 25. He then answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, <laughs> I see. Deal with it. Why don't you answer me? I'm the one with a question here. Oh, learned ones. Why am I healed? My parents might have been weak and fearful, but I can't go on with your assumptions of accusing Jesus for being a blasphemer all I know is I was blind, and now I'm no longer blind. I can see. Verse 26, so they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want, me to, why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become a disciple too, do you? Actually, this man <laughs> was being sarcastic. He's being facetious. So they're saying, Okay, tell me again, how did he heal you? Now, think about back in the garden. How does Satan come to anyone to discredit God in their lives? 
they ask a question, but not to find information, but to discredit. There's a difference between asking a question and questioning, right? Somebody can ask you a question, but sometimes they're not asking you a question, they're questioning you, right? And this is what Satan did in the, in the garden to Eve. Did God not say that you will die? Well, yes, he did. Surely you won't. In other words, surely he lied. And here they are saying to him, now tell us again, how did this happen? If it really did, by the way. And he says to them, I've already told you. You got my witnesses. They're my parents, my neighbors. Everybody already knows that I was blind. You can now scientifically figure out that I can now see a real miracle happened. Why are you asking me this again? Is it because you want to become a disciple of Christ? Knowing that they're the ones who excommunicate those who become disciples of Christ. So he's questioning their motive for questioning him. Are you all with me? Okay, good, good, good. So this man, does anybody know which verse we're in? Thank you. They, okay, let's go back to 27 then. He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want me to hear it again? Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become a, his disciple too, do you? In other words, stop asking me these questions. They spoke abusively to him and said, You are his disciple, but we, not us, no, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, well, here is the amazing thing, isn't it? That you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. The beggar is getting really bold with these Pharisees. He says, in essence, here is the amazing thing, you guys. Uh, you are the religious leaders of the day. You are the educated academia of our day and our religion. But you don't even know what's going on here, do you? <laughs> You're asking me for questions. You're the ones that are supposed to have questions on these things. Now that I can see, it's clear to me. You're the blind ones. Verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if someone, this is the blind man who just, got, who just received sight. This is him speaking. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if someone is God-fearing and does His will, He listens to Him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of, of, of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This is what this man just said, this beggar. But they answered the beggar saying, You were born entirely in sins, and yet you are teaching us. So they put him out. They excommunicated him from the faith. Oh, do I love this next part. How many of you now understand what it, what it means to, what the perseverance or the preservation of the saints mean? Yeah, anybody? Preservation of the saints. The work that God starts, that work God finishes, and He gets all the glory for it. Amen. Why? Because He is the Good Shepherd. Guess what the next chapter is about? The Good Shepherd. What does the Good Shepherd do? He goes after the lost one, and He ensures the lost one is no longer lost. Right? He will never start something in your life without also completing it in your life. Look at what happens here. 
verse 35. After this man is excommunicated, it says, Jesus heard that they had put him out of the synagogue. And upon finding him, all right, let's stop right there. What happened? Jesus went looking for this guy. The guy wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus came after him. And upon finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered by saying, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you right now. And the man said, I believe, Lord. And he worshipped him. And he worshipped him. You see, the beggar first called Jesus a man. Then he started seeing more clearly. He said, a prophet. And then he started seeing, seeing even more clearly. And then he said, Lord. And he worshipped. It's an amazing thing. His view of Jesus was clearing up. He now has perfect sight of who Jesus really is, that he is Lord. Amen. And while he was gaining sight, the rest started losing their sight. Jesus successfully drew worship out of this man while successfully exposing the blasphemy of the Pharisees. We have to realize this. That every time Jesus speaks a hard word, one of two things are coming out of me. Worship or blasphemy. Hmm. But it's not that Jesus poked and poked and poked until they retaliated with blasphemy. No, 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 no. Is he revealed, he revealed and he revealed until it was exposed. Ah, so there's always blasphemy in there, isn't there? And to the other one, not blasphemy, but worship. Verse 39. And Jesus said, for judgment, for judgment. Can everybody please say for judgment? For judgment, for judgment I came into this world. No, now he's going to explain this judgment. For judgment I came into this world. For what purpose? So that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Who are those who see? All those Pharisees who looked into the Torah daily, memorized it, could answer every question, knew exactly what Moses said. But where Moses and Abraham would rejoice in that very day, they wanted to murder. They could see. If anybody should have recognized Jesus, it should have been them, right? The learned, the academia. I'm not, I'm not against being, being educated, but I'm against being stupid and being a fool. Because there's a difference. Some of, the, some of the most foolish people are brilliant when it comes to math. But they have zero understanding of life itself, especially eternal life. <clears throat> and it's the hubris that blinds them. And isn't it just so that here they are up on their pedestal, blinded by hubris, but the thing that caused that man to see is because, I mean, he was a poor beggar. What did he have to lose? Nothing. 
He had nothing. So Jesus said in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You might say, well, how does this work? Just like the same sun has a dual effect on clay and wax, sun does two different things, the same sunbeams, depending on what the substance is. It hardens the clay, while at the same time it softens and melts the wax. So also, being exposed to the Son of God, hearing Him speak and seeing His miracles, hearing His hard statements and seeing His miracles that fulfill the Old Testament prophecies of who He should be, that hardens the hearts of those who do not want to understand, while at the same time it softens those who do. That's why you'll find a church that, that hears hard preaching often of have seats filled with soft hearts. Hard preaching always produces soft hearts. But soft preaching, God loves you, always produces what? Hard hearts. It does. You walk into that crowd and you show Jesus drawing lines. And what would their response be? Well, God is love. That's all. And if you don't disagree with me, you know, then you're the hater. All you have to do is repeat Jesus' words. You don't have to ever say anything. Repeat Jesus' words and you'll see that divide just appear all around you. Verse 40, coming in for a landing here. Those who were with him from the Pharisees, those who were with him from the Pharisees heard these things and said to him. In other words, those Pharisees that were with Jesus said to him, what? We're not blind too, are we? Are you saying I'm blind? Are you saying I'm not saved? Are you saying I can't see the truth? What are you saying? You're saying I don't know God? Here they go again. They still haven't changed. They still are arguing the same thing. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you maintain, I see, I'm a Christian, I know God. Now that you, now that you maintain, I, we see, your sin remains. As long as you are going to be obstinate of this issue and you refuse to see how I have just fulfilled before your eyes all that Moses spoke about, how I just fulfilled before your eyes all the prophets have spoken about, if you refuse to see that, and if you refuse to say, I'm blind, I need sight, your sin remains on you because you refuse to admit you refuse to acknowledge you're blind. You claim you have light without me. You claim you have light without me. In other words, you claim you can see without me, Jesus says. That is why you remain in your sins. Amen.